morning. Hebrews chapter 2, where you can be turning once again uh, this morning. We'll begin reading in just a, a moment at verse 9. This is our second week of four in which we're walking through Hebrews chapter 2. And we're doing this in order to let it speak to us about uh, questions of the incarnation as we prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. The question that we're asking in particular here and that we're getting answers from from this second chapter is the question, why? Why did God become man? Last week we looked at verses 5 to 9 and we saw a first answer to that question. We saw that God became man in order to bring to fulfillment God's original intention for mankind, for his people. That's what Jesus Christ of Nazareth is, as at last a faithful covenant head of the human race receives a crown and rules over creation. This morning, we consider a second answer to the question, why? This time from verses 10 to 13. The answer that we get here as we read is not the easiest to immediately understand. And that's part of what excites me about our opportunity together this morning. I pray that God would use this next hour to give us clarity as to what we're hearing in these verses. The answer that we're going to see and explore together comes in particular from verse 10. What we're going to find is that God became man to bring many sons to glory. So let's read the text. We'll begin reading at verse 9. Uh, because it serves to bring us well into verses 10 to 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Some of the things said to us in this text are not the easiest to understand. And so much of our time this morning will be concerned with trying to do that. We're going to roll up our sleeves and understand what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. But as we do that, what we'll find is that we're hearing, in fact, a second answer to this month's question. We are learning something tremendous here about the necessity of the Incarnation. So let's begin to understand what it is that we've read. And I would have us approach this this morning by asking and answering three questions. 
Now, all of them arise out of verse 10. We'll see that verse 10 is what drives this passage. Verses 11 to 13 all serve verse 10 because they expand on what is said in verse 10. Here are the questions that we're going to think about together. Question one will be this. What is the it in verse 10 when it says, for it was fitting? What is the it? That'll be the first question. Second question, what does it mean to perfect Jesus through sufferings? And then third question, why was it fitting to do this? That's how verse 10 opens, isn't it? For it was fitting that these things should happen. We'll spend increasing time as we go on. Most of our time will be spent with that third question. Why was it fitting to do this? But it's very helpful that we start with the first question, even though it doesn't take us much time to answer. But it's good for us to ask it. What is the it in verse 10 when it says, for it was fitting? Let me read verse 10 again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author explicitly tells us what the it is that he's describing. The only reason it can be a little bit hard to see is that there are some prepositional phrases put into the middle of the sentence. So we're told that this he that he speaks of is, quote, the one for whom and by whom all things exist. You see that there? This is clearly God that's being spoken of. We're told that this is who this is. We're also told that he did what he did, quote, in bringing many sons to glory. That's what we're talking about this morning. Those two things are there in the middle of verse 10. If you take them out, if you try to cover them up with your fingers, you can suddenly see what the verse is saying was fitting when it says it was fitting. Here's what we'd read without those. It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And by this point, it's become quite obvious who he's talking about, hasn't it? This entire letter has been about the Son, who is superior to angels. In all of the ways that chapter 1 told us in the beginning of chapter 2 described. And now in verse 9, this Son has even been named. It's Jesus that he speaks to us about. So let's insert Jesus' name there into verse 10. It is fitting that he should make Jesus perfect through suffering. Now that brings us to the second question that concerns us this morning. It's a very good question. It's a very important question. What are we meant to understand as we read a statement like that? Jesus was made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? What could that possibly mean? Well, one of the principles that the, the youth are learning and practicing in our current series is we're walking through 1 John with them, and we're also walking through Bible study methods. And we were just talking about this in our last meeting and practicing it in 1 John is to identify something that's been called the analogy of Scripture. You heard that statement, the analogy of Scripture? It's just a name for a principle. And the principle is this, that when we come to something that is, that is unclear, that is difficult to understand in Scripture, what we must do 
is let Scripture interpret Scripture. We go to clear statements to help us understand and rightly interpret statements that may be more unclear. Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's think about how that would begin to guide us already as we think about this statement, that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. What else are we told to this effect? What else are we told in the book of Hebrews, for example? And there's two places that are very helpful for us to have in mind as we come at this second question. One of them is Hebrews 4, 15. Here's what we read there. Again, speaking about this son, about Jesus Christ, but now in this context, in chapter 4, speaking about him in his office as high priest. And here's what we read. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and then what comes next? Yet without sin. It's quite a statement. We see another in chapter 7, Hebrews 7, 26. We read this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, like the earthly high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. What is our author telling us there? This high priest, Jesus, our high priest, has no need to first offer sacrifices for his own sins. Why? Because he doesn't have any. He is the perfect high priest. Now, how does all of that inform us in our text here in verse 10 of chapter 2? Well, it immediately removes some potential confusion for us, doesn't it? About what this word perfect means. When it says Jesus was made perfect through suffering, it's not talking about a moral improvement of any kind. There was never any deficiency in him to be improved upon. Instead, what we need to understand is that that word perfect and the verb perfect in particular is commonly used in the Old Testament when it's talking about the consecration and the qualification of the priest for his office. One commentator, Peter O'Brien, describes it in this way. He said, Christ's being perfected is a vocational process. Vocational. Thinking about a particular job that has been given to do. Christ's being perfected is a vocational process by which he is made complete or fully equipped for his office. This statement that we have in our text, that the author of our salvation was perfected through suffering, is telling us that it was through suffering that he became qualified to be the author of our salvation, to fulfill that role for us. Now this morning, we have to reflect on how that could be. I mean, this has been helpful to this point of understanding that perfecting of our Lord doesn't at all entail any, anything moral, any kind of moral improvement, but we're still left with a question that I think can be really puzzling to us of how we could think of Jesus as ever needing to arrive at something, to become qualified for something. How are we to understand that? And 
given how he's put it here, how, how could it be that his sufferings are the means of that? How are his sufferings the means by which that qualification would occur? If you put those two questions together, you have our third question for this morning, the one that we'll spend the rest of our time with. How do sufferings qualify Jesus Christ to be our Savior? Or to use the word that he used in the beginning here, why would it be fitting that God would do this? Why is it fitting to this situation that our Savior would be perfected for this calling as the author of our salvation through suffering? This is quite a question. And to begin to answer it, the one thing I would think we should notice first is that the suffering in verse 10 is a plural word. It is sufferings, not suffering. There are many reference when Christ's sufferings are being spoken of. The most immediate reality that that word would point to, of course, is what we have in mind, I would imagine. It's what's been spoken of in this text. It's been named in verse 9. Two times, verse 9 spoke about Jesus' death, didn't it? It spoke of him as crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that he might taste death. Death is what's been front and center. And it's proper because his death on the cross is the most direct answer to our question about these sufferings. The Bible declares something to us in reference to what's happening as our Lord lays down his life. And what the Bible declares is that sinners cannot be redeemed if our sins are not atoned for. It's a reality that all of those who belong to God in this place have been made to reckon with. As God has brought us to himself, humbled us, and brought us to him. That the problem that you face before God is not that you have failed to live up to your potential. It's not that you've lived a worse life than some other people. That that is not your problem. No, the problem that you face is that each and every moment that you have failed to perfectly conform inside and out to the law of God, you have committed an act of treason against the Holy One, against the Eternal One. And a sin committed against an eternal God bears eternal consequences. What do we read of this in Scripture? Think of what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. Romans 3, 19 and 20. For us to come into awareness of God's law is for us to find ourselves condemned. He says there that through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then just a few verses later, Romans 3.23, we learn that all have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. And then in Romans 6.23, we learn that those sins carry with them wages. As we read that the wages of sin is death. Colossians chapter 2 speaks about God forgiving our trespasses. What what had to happen for such forgiveness to be granted righteously? He says that God forgave our sins 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. And if the sentence stopped there, it would leave us in a very confused place. How on earth can a good, righteous judge take sins and just set them aside? That's what a wicked judge does. How could a good, just judge do such a thing? But that's not where the sentence ends, is it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. To be rescued from the penalty of my sins, they must be nailed to the cross. For them to be nailed to the cross in a way that atones for them, Jesus must hang there and die in my place for those sins on that cross. And my friends, for Jesus to hang and die on that cross, he must take on flesh. Which is to say, he cannot be the author of my salvation, as he is named in our text this morning, apart from the suffering of death on that cross. Through that suffering, then, Jesus is qualified to be the author of my salvation. Now, it's because of all of that 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 I've said that the cross is the most direct referent of this word when it speaks of Christ's sufferings. But in fact, there's a lot more that we need to say besides only looking at his suffering of death on the cross if we want to appreciate Hebrews 2, verses 9 to 13. Because what's pointed to here is finally the cross, but it does not point only to the cross, not by a long shot. The sufferings of our Lord go far beyond only the suffering of death. And this is a reality that's been well appreciated historically. Take, for example, the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It, it gives us a question in that, in that helpful catechism. The question is this, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And it asks that question because in a, in a question a few before that, it spoke about Jesus acting as our Redeemer, both in a state of humiliation and exaltation. This is what it's just been talking about. So now it says, tell me more about this humiliation of our Lord. And here's the answer that it gives to this question. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. You hear the cross in there. You hear the wrath of God poured out on the cross there. But that's not all that they give. Think of those other things. Think of how all of those things play into the sufferings of our Lord as he came and dwelt among us and became one of us and took on flesh and blood. What you have in the incarnation is you have the king of glory submitting to a condition in which he needs regular diaper changes for the first several years of his life. You have the author of all life depending on the nurture of a mother in order to survive. You have the king of all creation respecting and submitting to 
fallen human parents. By the way, it may be a good thing for the teenagers in here to remember as you're enduring what the rest of us have endured, that great trial period of having to submit to parents that you've figured out are not as smart as you are. It's helpful to remember that Christ himself was called to and did perfectly submit to human fallen parents. And he did it with joy. You have in the incarnation the source of life, having to grow weary, to mourn at times, to fear in the garden as he prayed and sweat drops of blood. It's not just the sufferings of death that qualify Jesus to be the author of our salvation. It's the sufferings of life. It's the sufferings of human life that made him perfect, that qualified him as the author of our salvation. Verse 10 has said of all of this that we're seeing, it was fitting that God should do this. It's fitting. And it's fitting because what we find is that before Jesus Christ could die for us, could atone for our sins, before he could do that, he first had to identify with us. He cannot redeem us without becoming one of us. And that reality is, in fact, what the rest of our text is consumed with. Reflecting on, talking about that need and that experience. The necessity and experience of Jesus identifying with his people by means of the Incarnation. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, For it was fitting for him to make Jesus perfect through sufferings. Why? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What it literally says is, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are one. This is what God has done in this fitting, needful way. He has taken him and us and made us one in the incarnation. He who sanctifies is Jesus. Those who are sanctified are the rescued people of God. They are the, again, the everyone of verse 9. They are the many sons of verse 10. What verse 11 speaks to is the reality that God has provided one who can represent the human race because he is one with the human race. Jesus is 100% man, even as he is 100% God. There can be no talk of 50% humanity because we do not need 50% rescue. It was one of the early church fathers in the 4th century who famously said, what has not been assumed, what Christ did not take to himself, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. Jesus had to be one with us if he is to stand in our place in the very way we saw last week. If he is to be our king, if he is to represent us before God, he must belong to us. And in the incarnation, Jesus Christ did exactly that. Verse 11 goes on. He says, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What a thing to say. Jesus shouted out something incredible in Matthew chapter 12. He was being summoned 
by his family members. They'd sent someone, and he comes and says, Jesus, your mother and brothers want to talk to you. And here was his response in Matthew 12, 48. But he replied to the man who told him, this is what Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does, listen to this, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. My friends, with whom is our Lord identifying there? It's not even true to say in the specific way that he speaks here that he is making this familial identification with the human race, is he? Though he has taken on flesh and blood, but who is he identifying with in this familial way? Those he is calling part of his family are, quote, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, these are my brother and sister and mother. This is what we're getting at when we make the significant point that Christ, in taking on flesh, was not thereby joining himself to every human being in history. Jesus took on flesh, and yet, flesh and blood people can still be very much separated from Christ, can't they? What is it that joins them to him? Or to use the language here of verse 11, who is it that he is not ashamed to identify with, to call his brothers? I'll just keep reading. Verse 12. Actually, let me start back at the middle of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Yet again, a reference to the Old Testament. Yet again, a reference to Hebrew poetic parallelism. I will tell your name to my brothers. I will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation. His brothers are the congregation here. The word is ecclesia. It's the word used throughout the Old Testament in reference to the gathered people of God. It's the word used throughout the New Testament when the church is spoken of. His brothers are his people, those to whom he will reveal God's name. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will sing of your praise in the midst of the congregation. What a thing that is to hear. Where will he reveal that name from? From heaven? Not what he says here. No. In their very midst. He is one of them. He will stand in the midst of them. He will walk among them, declaring the name. Now, even as he puts such an emphasis on our unity with him by talking like that, our author is clear that distinctions remain between us and our Savior. We saw it in verse 11. There's he who sanctifies, and then there is those who are sanctified, set apart from one another. That combination of a distinction from us and yet a real union with us is seen in verse 13 as well. Look at what he says here. He's in the midst of referencing the Old Testament, to demonstrate Christ's brotherhood with God's people. 
Though in verse 12, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then he attributes the words of Psalm 22:22 in their ultimate fulfillment to Christ when he quotes, I will tell your name to my brothers. He takes that quote and puts it in the mouth of Jesus. Verse 13 seems to reference two more quotes from the Old Testament. Do you see them there? Each starting with the words, and again, and again. But it seems like actually he's pointing us to two things that Isaiah says back to back in Isaiah chapter 8. In that chapter, Isaiah says in verse 17, I will put my trust in him, or I will hope in him. And then the very next thing that Isaiah says is, and he says it to clarify that statement, Behold, I and the children God has given me. So back to back in Isaiah's statement there. So in a way, what we have here in 13 is a single statement that Isaiah makes. But notice what it does for the author of Hebrews to dissect the statement like he does here. It, it lets, it causes the first part. I will put my trust in him to display Christ's active submission. That he actively entrusted himself to the Father just as all God's people do. Except, of course, in his case, Jesus can do that. Jesus can submit to the will of the Father, can put his trust in him with words like only and always. We saw that in John's Gospel, didn't we? Not too long ago. The posture that you hear in those places defines the people of God. But you hear, for example, John 8, 26, Jesus says, I only speak the things that I heard from the Father. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We saw that a while back. It's not been very long since we heard from John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus say something to Mary Magdalene. Do you remember when he said to her, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth has indeed put his trust in God. As he leads out in those ways for all of God's people. And that first quotation here in verse 13 all by itself displays that point for us. But that victory for which Jesus is trusting God is not his alone. It also is a victory that belongs to his brothers and sisters. Or to put it another way, it belongs to the children whom God has given him. Hebrews does not speak of this faithful victory won by Christ without mentioning that in winning this victory, he was winning it for a group of his brothers, his children. In verses 11 and 12, we're called his brothers. And in verses 13 and 14, we're called his children. Both are true in their own ways. I mean, what is a brother? A brother is one who can say what we heard Jesus tell Mary Magdalene, my father and your father. In taking on flesh, Christ has become the elder brother, the inheritor of the new human race. All those to whom he has revealed the name of God. Isn't that how he was just described in verse 12? 
That's what a brother is. Children are those who, you could say, whose existence as members of this family is owed to you. So Paul, as he shares the gospel with many, and as they come to faith, he can speak of them as his children spiritually in that way. Because their membership in the family was by means of his proclamation. That's a lesser example. But we see how the word children can be used. The one who, and this is far more more literal in the case of Christ, isn't it? The one who secured your adoption into this family can be considered a father, and you his children or his offspring. Both of these realities, brotherhood and fatherhood, are significant and they're true. But the second part of the quote here really shows us why the author brings this Isaiah text up. Because in it, we we not only see Christ entrusting himself personally to God, we also see him acknowledging a particular relationship to exist between him and us, between him and God's people. I and the children God has given me, we will put our trust in him. To put those words from Isaiah into Jesus' mouth, is to echo the words that Jesus spoke in John 6, 39. Just listen to what he said there. Consider how much it echoes the joint statement here of Hebrews 2, 13. This is what we heard from our Lord, John 6, 39. Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. When God gives us children in our lives, those children do not come to us, they are not given to us with promises from God that since he's given them to us, they will certainly follow in the faith that we have. We're not given those promises, are we, when God gives us children. But when God gave a people to his son, that promise defined that group of people. Those given to Christ by the Father will hear his voice and will listen to him, and not one of them will be lost. That's what it means to be given to Christ. And thus it is appropriate to speak of that people as his children, as his offspring. Can we see this together in one more place? And would you turn here? Would you go with me back to Isaiah chapter 53? That most famous, perhaps, of Old Testament messianic prophecies of what our Lord has done. I'm just going to read verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This piece of this prophecy is particularly zooming in on the fruit of what Jesus has done for his people. And notice what we 
have just read. Middle of verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. When he has finished making this atonement, what will be in his sight? The results of what he has done for a people that God has given him. That's what verse 11 still speaks of. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What is he seeing? He is seeing that he has accomplished this and ransomed the people to God. He shall see his offspring and be satisfied. And we can tell that's still what he has in mind because it's the way that verse 11 ends. What it's celebrating is that by his knowledge the righteous, shall the righteous one, my servant, do what? Make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is about what he has done for a people. Those that he calls there his offspring. How has God accomplished what our text, Hebrews 2, 10 to 13, has said? How has God brought many sons to glory? And my friends, what was necessary for those sons to be brought to glory? They have to have a new covenant head. A new human being standing for them before God. By whose sacrifice their sins could be forever put away from them. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. And for that to happen, that man, that founder of their salvation, that one that will be called later in Hebrews, the author and perfecter of their faith, he had to become qualified for such a role by taking on their flesh and thereby enduring all their miseries, all the sufferings associated with us. He had to become one of us. And we might close this morning by peeking into the text for next week, coming back to Hebrews 2, just to read verse 14. Because speaking of fitting things, it's fitting that verse 14 would come after what we've just said. Look at how this reads, since therefore, you see the connection? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. We begin to look at that next week. But what does it tell us in our present context this morning? It tells us that the eternal Son, the Word of God, who is God and who has been with the Father from the beginning, John chapter 1, had to come and share in flesh and blood that he might redeem his flesh and blood people. Why did God become man? Because God willed to bring many sons to glory. And I would ask you to remember this morning, this is the content of your saving faith. This is what it is when, a, when someone comes to a saving knowledge of Christ and puts their faith on him. This is what you are trusting Jesus Christ to be and to do. You're not trusting him to be making you good enough to deserve heaven. You're trusting him to be that perfect of a representative that God would accept his death in place of your death. You're trusting him to be that perfect of a leader that he will be able to bring you all the way to glory. 
Your faith is saving faith. If by faith you are looking upon Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith, as the founder of your salvation. Is this what you see when you see Jesus? Let's pray together. God, we worship you together this morning and we express our tremendous gratitude that you have loved us and that you have loved us in the way we must be loved. You have loved us in your Son, through whom every blessing in the spiritual places are ours. God, my prayer this morning for all of us here is that by means of our time spent in your word, spent in Hebrews chapter 2, that you might lead us to marvel anew at what you have done in sending your Son to take on flesh, to assume our humanity, to endure all the miseries of this life. Oh God, what sympathy we see in this divine plan of redemption. What mercy, what true love that gives of itself in order to sanctify the one loved. God, it is true what you have told us. By this we know, love, that your Son laid down his life for us. Lead us, God, to love our brothers and sisters with the love that you have shown us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.